We're just trying to find the PowerPoint as well. It's been one of those mornings, really. Hello, hello. Is this on? Cool. So that one happened as well, Ben. In the meantime, uh, good morning. My name is Slater. This is my beautiful wife in the front row. Her name is Mary. This is my great friend, Jim. He's accompanying and supporting this morning. So hello, greetings. Um, great, cool. Oh, and I got a clicker. Nice, very good. I will just pray for you before we start. Great. That's all right, then. Yeah. Now we are sorted. Father, I want to thank you for Slater. Thank you that, for the studies he's doing in your word and how to communicate that in this world. And we want to thank you for him coming to speak with us today. And I pray you'd anoint him as he speaks and help his words to bear rich fruit in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, I usually uh, don't go off script to begin, uh, but I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, I just wanted to share, I was profoundly moved uh, by the children up here, joyfully waving their flags uh, during the worship. And I think, I think it struck me that I'm just a child before God waving a flag in light of his presence and his goodness. And uh, man, it was beautiful to watch, and I, I think they really get it. Um, and so thanks to whoever just shared, wherever you are, um, I think the kids get it more than most of us in here with the joy they have uh, in light of God. Um, as Nick said, my name's Slater, uh, big fan of the current series, What's in the News? Uh, couldn't be more happy to speak on a topic that is very near and dear to my own heart, and that is happiness and well-being. And I'm grateful uh, for the leadership team for putting these two topics together, because I think they're two topics that go hand in hand. So oftentimes, it seems like when we, oh good, this is working, uh, it seems like when we refer to happiness, we mean it as, to quote Terry Eagleton, a feeble holiday camp sort of word, evocative of manic grins and cavorting about. To be happy is to have fun, to enjoy life, to have a good time, the very type of thing you envision yourself doing on holidays. But if I were to ask you, do you want to be happy? I think you would understand me to be talking about a very sort, different sort of happiness. I think you would understand me to be talking about more than the temporary high we get while we're on holiday. Now, don't get me wrong, big fan of holidays, but they're temporary, and I don't think they ever deliver the long-term happiness that we're seeking. If they did, then we probably wouldn't all want to keep taking one every six months, which is where I think well-being bolsters our understanding of happiness. When happiness and well-being are seen as the same thing, we end up with a conception of happiness that I think is much more in line with the way the word is historically used, a sort of life happiness, a human flourishing, a deep-seated satisfaction. If I were to ask you, do you want to be happy? In this sense, I'm willing every single person in this room would want this sort of happiness. Which leads us then to a very important question this morning that we're inevitably faced with when we're discussing the topic of happiness. It's namely the question of our own happiness. To be honest with you, happiness can actually be a very uncomfortable question to talk about from the front. Life can be difficult, and when we're going through a tough time, the last thing you often need is someone going to the front and talking about your own unhappiness. So I want to say I'm sympathetic to that, and I'm aware of the reality that we are all approaching the question from very different places. Having said that, I do think it's safe to say happiness is something we're all seeking, even if we are seeking it from very different places. So the question remains then, 
how do I obtain happiness and well-being? Well, as uh, you may or may not know, I'm a student, and in keeping with good scholarly practice, I began my research for this talk by going to every student's most reliable resource, and that is Google. So I Googled how to find happiness. And this is what I got. 458 million results, how to find happiness, which so far, so good. It seemed like my talk today was going to be pretty short, uh, since apparently finding happiness is pretty easy. You've got 458 million different ways you can find happiness. So I started looking through the results, and here were the first six results that came through. Ten simple ways to find happiness. Eight ways to find happiness in your life right now. How to find happiness within. How to find happiness. Three secrets from research. Daily happiness. Thirteen simple ways to find it in your life. And why you will never find happiness in life. <laughs> Tough ending. Uh, it's interesting, though. You see ten ways. You see eight ways. Empirical research. Happiness within. Thirteen ways. Actually, there's no happiness at all. Right away, we should at least be able to spot one direct contradiction from those results. But beyond that, it seems there's some confusion on how we actually find happiness. Are there three ways? Are there eight ways? Are there 10 ways? Are there 13 ways? So to try to and alleviate some of the confusion, I once again turned to Google, this time Googling, what is the key to well-being? Well, to my dismay, this ended up muddying the waters further for me, as you'll see. I was given 2.4 billion results, uh, and you can see them up there, five proven keys, Keys to well-being, the four keys to well-being, five ways to well-being. At least this time around, no result said well-being doesn't exist. However, there is still some confusion here. Is it five ways? Is it four ways? Are there a specific amount of ways? So as far as I can tell, there's really two ways to interpret these results. Either happiness and well-being are very easy to obtain, and we have essentially 458 million different options to choose from at minimum, or happiness and well-being are very difficult to obtain, and we've got at least 400 million options because no one's quite sure how to get them. My assertion is that it's the latter. We all want happiness, but we're not exactly sure how to get it. And maybe you think that's an unfair reading of the data, so I'm gonna, I'll make my case. Given that history repeats itself, I thought to begin, it might be useful to turn to history to try and resolve some of the present-day confusion over how to find happiness. And as you'll shortly see, spoiler alert, a brief glance at history elicits some surprising results. Since we are at church, it seemed pretty logical to first turn to the Bible to see what it had to say about ultimate happiness. Specifically, focused on the book of Ecclesiastes, and it was written by King Solomon of Israel. Now, the choice makes sense not only because Solomon was considered to be one of the wisest persons to ever walk the earth, but also because Ecclesiastes deals extensively with man's quest for finding meaning in life. I want to read you Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 2. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, and I planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. So it's worth mentioning as well that Solomon was unimaginably wealthy. So he had at his disposable limitless resources for achieving happiness. He built massive expensive palaces. He was the wealthiest person in the world and oh, 
Yeah, he also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Needless to say, when Solomon says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desire, I refuse my heart no pleasure, I think we can be pretty certain he's not exaggerating that claim at all. And yet, here's Solomon's conclusion on that. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated life. It's pretty bleak. We're going to return later to what the Bible also has to say. So in light of Solomon's bleak conclusion, I thought maybe the ancient Greeks would have something to offer our current condition, since much of modern Western thinking is indebted to the Greeks. Unfortunately, a very short bit of research only made my problem worse. Take, for example, Cicero. He's the guy on the left, Greek philosopher. He wrote an entire book considering the paradox that though everyone sets out to be happy, the majority are thoroughly wretched. Or take the Greek poet on the right, Horace, who posed the question, how comes it to pass that no one lives content with his condition? Now, I'm not highlighting either of these to try and argue that at an individual level, level, anyone in here is definitely not happy. I'm simply highlighting them to demonstrate that the ancients faced a very similar problem to what we face today, namely that a lot of people want to be happy, yet not many people actually are happy. So this theme of continually grasping for happiness is continued all the way up to the 19th and 20th centuries. Take, for example, the great German philosopher on the left, great mustache, Friedrich Nietzsche, who, might I add, not a huge fan of Christianity, if you read anything he says. He famously said this, What must I do to be happy? That I know not. Or take the Nobel Prize-winning philosopher Albert Camus on the right, who developed the philosophical tradition of absurdism, which is essentially, it's man's quest for meaning and satisfaction and happiness in life being met with the cold, dark, bleak, silent universe. It seems if history can tell us anything about the pursuit and seeming paradox of happiness is that the problem is not a new one. And yet even still, we are creatures who are craving after ultimate happiness. If I were to take a poll right now on what do you think would bring you ultimate happiness, I think we could all guess some of the common ways that we would try to achieve that. So I want to highlight some of the common cultural narratives we're made to think will give us ultimate happiness, while also offering a gentle challenge to these purported solutions. So it seems big picture, and one of them's up there already, we can split our solutions and our attempts into two broad categories. If you're not happy, either change what you get from the world or change your relation to the world. Change what you get from the world or change your relation to the world. So let's first turn to the idea of changing what you get from the world, which manifests itself in several different forms, all following the general rubric, if only I, whatever that is, then I'll be happy. If only I made more money, then I'll be happy. If only I became famous, then I'd be happy. If only I was this person or with this person, then I'd be happy. Surely there's more. If only I got this job, if only I had this sort of family, if only I could move to this amazing place. Anything that falls under the general rubric of if only something about your current circumstances changed, then you'd be happy. So I want to briefly highlight three, which while not exhaustive, are very common. And those are money, fame, and sex. So money. I can't tell you how many students I've come across, both here and in the States, who when I ask them what they're studying, 
They often give me something, and then I ask why, and they just say, money. Seems that living in one of the most prosperous societies to ever exist, we've grown accustomed to the notion that money must be the key to happiness. And yet, empirically, the data seems to suggest otherwise. Studies done to research the effect of money and prosperity on mental health have shown there's a direct correlation between prosperity and depression. In other words, the more wealthy a society, the more common depression. Further, the data suggests that though American buying power has doubled in the past 40 years, Americans are statistically less happy now than they were 40 years ago. So empirically, it seems that the notion that more money leads to more happiness is in direct conflict with the research. And data aside, there's historic counterexamples that challenge the more money, more happiness narrative. Foremost among them, the man up there, American oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, a man whose net worth in today's money was a mere 336 billion US dollars, which is more than triple the world's current richest, Jeff Bezos. Uh, when asked how much money is enough, Rockefeller simply responded, one more dollar. So let's look at fame. Again, we don't have to think long about this as one of the kind of biggest things we see in the news is the rampant substance abuse in Hollywood's elite, which should immediately give us cause for concern when considering whether fame will give us ultimate happiness. Many, including comedian Jim Carrey, argue that part of the problem is that fame is something people strive for, but once they have it, it's empty. It just leaves them grasping after the wind, so to speak. In Carrey's own words, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Now, I find that to be quite a remarkable admission from Carrie, considering he also included his financial achievements and accomplishing his dreams alongside his condemnation of fame, giving ultimate happiness. So by now, you are probably catching on to a trend here, but I want to finally look at sex very briefly, uh, mainly due to the fact that this is a very sensitive issue, so I don't want to press it too hard. Simply highlighting the fact that divorce rates worldwide hover around 50%, which I think sufficiently challenges the notion that if only I marry or even just get with this person, then I'll be happy. So I want to end this bit on changing what you get from the world by reading a quote from Leo Tolstoy, a man who himself personally wrestled with his own quest for ultimate happiness. In his book, Anna Karenina, which many regard to be one of the greatest works of literature ever, Tolstoy pens these words. Despite the full realization of what he had desired for so long, he was not happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desire had given him only a grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the eternal error people make in imagining happiness is the realization of desires. So here's the thing. I think there's good reason why we myself included, often try and find ultimate happiness from these things I've highlighted. They do bring a certain level of happiness and satisfaction. So my critique is not that there's no happiness to be found in these things, because there is. It's just that I'm not sure these things can deliver the thing we want most, which is ultimate happiness. It seems no matter which way we try and do it, changing what we get from the world likely won't deliver ultimate happiness. So if changing what we get from the world is not the solution, what about changing how we relate to the world? Strategy is quite in vogue now, and it seems to manifest itself in three ways. 
eliminate, ignore, or change your desire in specific ways. So first, eliminate your desire from happiness. And this strategy can be seen within Buddhism. So speaking very generally, in Buddhism, desires are seen as a source of suffering. We desire certain things, we don't get those things, and then we suffer through our lack of fulfillment of those things. Applied to our desire for ultimate happiness, instead of seeking it, which is unattainable, get rid of your desire for ultimate happiness, and then you will not be disappointed by your lack of happiness. This solves the problem of being let down by the various things we try and get from the world that we just outlined. However, it does raise another problem, namely that of ignoring what seems to be a pretty basic instinct within us. It seems pretty intuitive to us that our desires more often than not correspond with something in reality. We get hungry, food exists. We get thirsty, water exists. We desire happiness, but it doesn't exist. I'm just not sure ignoring what seems to be a very common desire makes sense of our shared human experience. So in a similar vein to this, instead of eliminating our desire for happiness, we can just ignore our desire for happiness, as this gentleman up here, Julian Beghini, has suggested. Beghini asserts that no one is happy in the fuller sense that we're talking about today. And further, no one actually needs to be happy. Maybe you desire happiness, but that is an impossible desire. Just ignore the desire for happiness as a sort of evolutionary anomaly. Now, this option falls prey to the critique I just gave above, namely that it doesn't really make sense of what it means to be human. And further, the evolutionary account for why we have desires for ultimate happiness just doesn't pan out. The argument is that our unfulfilled desires for happiness are evolutionarily advantageous because one who's not happy will work harder and be more competitive for resources if they're continually unsatisfied. However, I would submit it's just as likely that unfulfilled desires for ultimate happiness are equally evolutionarily disadvantageous as they could lead to depression and hopelessness. So I'm not sure ignoring our desire for happiness is a viable option. So finally then, we could change the way we interact with the world. Any number of the four, five, 10, 13 ways or whatever could fit under this heading. So I wanna focus specifically on the happiness handbook today, developed by the, UN, the United Nations Council for the International Day of Happiness. The handbook lists off 10 keys for happiness that fit under a nice acronym, Great Dream. You can see it right here. So you can see them up there, giving, relating, exercising, awareness, trying out, direction, resilience, emotions, acceptance, and meaning. So by now, you're probably liking, likely expecting me to critique this list, which I will briefly do, but I actually really wanna highlight, there's some really good principles in here, and I'm not really disagreeing with this list in principle. I, I'm just not sure as we reflect and go a little deeper into what these things are saying, the list is as helpful as we might hope, especially in terms of delivering us ultimate happiness. So I'm just going to briefly highlight a few. First off, doing things for others. This is a great idea, and I'm not saying not to do things for others, because that is lovely, and I think it's often difficult to go wrong doing things for others. The problem for me isn't the deed, it's the reason. This is on a list of keys to finding happiness, doing things for others. The reason for doing things for others is so that you find happiness, not them. 
It's not about doing good for others for the virtue of it, but doing good so you can benefit from it. Doing good so you can be happy. I find that problematic as inevitably we end up objectifying others as a means to our own personal quest for ultimate happiness. Doing good for others for your own sake might give you some happiness, but it seems kind of selfish. So later down on this list, resilience. Find ways to bounce back. I just don't know if that's helpful. How do I find happiness? Just bounce back when things are tough. Now, I'm not disagreeing with the fact that finding a way through difficult times is a good thing to do. I'm just wondering how this actually helps someone do so. If you're personally struggling through something, I'm not sure it's the most loving or helpful thing for me to do to just tell you to find a way to move on without actually giving you a way to do so. So lastly, I think it's worth pointing out that the sections on emotions and acceptance seem to stand in contradiction with one another. Be comfortable with who you are, but also look for what's good. I guess the question I'd like to ask is, what if who you are isn't good? I'm not sure any of us, if we're told to be comfortable with who we are, will conclude that we're just totally good. Immanuel Kant said, we may presuppose evil as necessary in every human being. Or Blaise Pascal who said, man is the glory and the garbage of the universe. We are, every single one of us, a mixture of good and bad. So I think the advice of being comfortable with who we are is is good advice, but focusing on the good only seems to suggest that we're not actually comfortable dwelling on the other side of us, the not good side. So while I think lists like these do have some merit and can be helpful, I'm just not sure they're able to deliver what we want most, and that is ultimate happiness. So at this point, it is worth asking if changing what we get from the world isn't the solution, and changing how we relate to the world isn't either, do we have any other options? Where can we find ultimate happiness? Well, I do think there's one more option that makes unique sense of our shared desire for happiness, as well as one that gives a solution to the desire. It's what the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis referred to as the Christian way. It's one I personally think makes sense both up here and down here. So as a bit of background, uh, unique to the way Christians think about God is the belief that God is love. Note not simply that he is loving, but that he is in himself love. The reason this is is based off understanding God as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons from eternity loving one another in infinite degrees beyond all comprehension. And it's okay if that is confusing, because it can be. I mean, it is God we're talking about. But I think what's important for the question of ultimate happiness is that love is fundamental to God's identity. The reason I highlight this is that one of the central and unique claims made by Christianity is that man and woman are made in the image of God. First off, Just take a minute to soak that in. You were uniquely made to reflect the God of the universe. That's pretty cool stuff. And as it relates to today, you and I, as bearers of God's image, are designed for love. Specifically to share and participate in God's love. And while that might sound complex, 
It's pretty straightforward. A God who is overflowing with love creates creatures to whom his love can overflow to. We are chosen recipients of the beautiful love of God. And thus love is fundamental to God's identity. And love is fundamental to our identity. Why do we love romance? Why is there such charm to love stories? Why do we just love love? Because we were made for it. I want to assert this morning that since love is fundamental to our identity, what shapes us more than anything, more than what we think, what we believe, what we do, is what we love. To quote St. Augustine, you are what you love. We are shaped by what we love, and we are made for love. Most importantly, we are made to be in a loving relationship with God. We are made to experience and participate in the infinite love of God. So all this to say, when I reflect upon the seemingly universal quest for ultimate happiness, and how I personally have been let down time after time by trying to find ultimate happiness in the many ways already described, it seems what's happening is we're trying to fill a hole in our hearts that is really ultimately meant to be filled by God alone. And no matter how hard we try to fill this hole or try to ignore this desire for ultimate happiness, we are continually let down. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there he is, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in the first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery had been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. According to Lewis, when we love things more than we love God, we're trying to fill an infinite gap with a finite fitting. When we do so, the it that we think we want always seems to evade us. One of the things I really admire about Jesus is that he really just seemed to get people. In the book of John chapter 4, John records an interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. And they have a conversation centered around the subjects thirst and water. Now there is a ton to unpack from this story, so I'd encourage you to take a look for it yourself after today. But what's really important for us today is that Jesus told this woman, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Now the skeptic might look at this passage and say, look, the Bible's clearly a myth because Jesus said he had a magic water and obviously that sort of thing doesn't exist. And if that's what was going on, I would agree. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. See, the thing is, when we do a closer reading of this passage, it seems there's something else going on than initially meets the eye. 
In this passage, we learn that this Samaritan woman had been married five times, and when she meets Jesus at the well, she's currently living with her boyfriend, so guy number six, which I think for our purposes today, it means this. This woman had experienced unimaginable grief, heartbreak, and rejection when she meets Jesus. It's the sort of emotional trauma you honestly wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And Jesus meets her at the well, and he makes this offer to her. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. In the text, we see when this offer is suddenly framed in light of this woman's relationship history, divorces and all, you can see there's a shift in her attitude. He's brought up something that's very intimate and personal to her. So the woman changes the subject away from her personal history, and after a brief discussion on the nature of which religion is true, this woman discovers Jesus' true identity. Jesus tells her he is the Messiah. He is God. Perhaps the most important detail other than that one that the text notes is that on discovering Jesus' true identity, the woman runs back into town where she had come from, and she left her water jar behind. It's a detail that makes sense only if we understand the nature of Jesus' offer. When Jesus told this woman, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst, he was not referring to satisfying a physical thirst. He was referring to a much deeper thirst. This woman's thirst for ultimate happiness. It's the reason Jesus brings up her history in the first place. She seems to have been seeking ultimate happiness in her relationships, and Jesus is making her confront whether that water, if you will, is actually satisfying her thirst. If it's not, which it seems it wasn't, Jesus' offer might be pretty appealing to her. I would submit this morning that the only reason Jesus could make such an offer is if he was God and he knew we were designed to find ultimate happiness in a relationship with him. I mean, the reason he came to earth in the first place is because he loved us, but we loved other things instead. Despite that, despite how often we try and find our ultimate satisfaction and happiness in things that were never really meant to satisfy, Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Later on in John, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Anyone. This talk began by facing the question of our own happiness. But perhaps the more appropriate question this morning is, are we thirsty? The Samaritan woman accepted Jesus' offer of a water that satisfies completely. But her thirst being quenched doesn't make our thirst quenched. She made her decision, but we have our own decision to make. Now, I'm not going to try to prove, and indeed, I cannot prove to you this morning that a relationship with Jesus will give you ultimate happiness. But I can say, try it for yourself. Before I was a Christian, I was really thirsty. But I'm not any longer. And that's not to say that life in a relationship with Jesus is all rainbows and sunshine, but it is to say my desire for ultimate happiness has been fulfilled. I think a fitting way to just close this morning in light of Jesus' offer is to give you a chance to respond to that invitation of Jesus 
let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Maybe you've come today having been let down time after time in your quest for ultimate happiness. I know what that feels like. Maybe you've come having tried time after time to suppress your desire for fear of being let down once again. Whoever you are and whatever your circumstances you've come from, I just want to say this morning that Jesus' offer is for you. I'm going to end with a prayer. Just ask that. If everyone could just bow their heads out of respect for those around them. I'm going to say a prayer. If you'd like to accept Jesus' offer of a water that satisfies completely, you can just say a short prayer with me. Dear Jesus, thank you that you've made me to love you. Thank you for loving me. I confess that for too long I've loved the wrong things. Please help me love you more than anything else. And please let me know the happiness and joy that come from knowing you. And Lord, for all of us in here today, thank you for sending your son to save us, to love us, and uh, to reveal to us the desires of our heart. May each of us come to know you, uh, as Jesus said, as the living water, as the one who all our desires point to. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.